So we closed one book of the Bible last Sunday, and we open up another today. We had been examining this Old Testament book of Proverbs, uh, gaining wisdom for, for making decisions, not just good decisions, but even greater decisions in life. And Proverbs are sort of like the Twitter of the Bible. They're, they're, they're bite-sized wisdom that's easy to memorize. And, and they're meant to be that way so that when life hits you with a critical decision about work, about wealth, about the words we use, about relationships, you can sort of have a proverb ready to pull out of your pocket like a, like a tool, a Swiss army knife. You're ready to, to pull it out and to defend your heart or to guard a decision or to make the right kind of decision. So for example, one proverb we looked at, Proverbs 13, 11, which said, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. And so that's a kind of bit of wisdom we can pull out at the right moment when faced with a too-good-to-be-true investment or the business proposition that promises wealth and wealth quickly. We can sort of guard our hearts with wisdom from God's Word immediately. And that's what Proverbs is for. And so one of the consistent themes you may have noticed, I hope you noticed, I hope you felt it from Sunday to Sunday, is that even with as much wisdom as we can get, even as much tools as we can get and kind of put in our toolbox for making great decisions in life, there's something that needs to change inside. There's something that needs to change in our hearts and our inner being for us to be able to make consistently great decisions in life. And so I actually went went back and looked, and three times during our study in Proverbs, we quoted the book of John, chapter 7, where Jesus basically says, and I'm paraphrasing, come and drink life from me so that you can give life to others. Because if you don't come to me and get life, you won't be able to give life. And so Proverbs is kind of like the frame of an automobile. Like the one my friend set about to to build from the inside out. Starting with the engine, he went all the way out to the bumper. He reassembled the whole car, assembled the whole car. Then he got the keys, and he turned the keys, and it wouldn't start, and he couldn't figure out why. He worked so hard, he troubleshooted, kept trying the ignition. Same thing. And hours later, he realized it was because he had forgotten the petrol. <laughs> He'd forgotten the gas, the fuel, the most basic thing he needed to run the car. So it's, it's so great to structure your life well, but wise living needs fuel. It needs the raw energy we cannot supply simply by getting everything in order. But that's what we do so often, right? We try to arrange our lives perfectly and then troubleshoot along the way thinking, well, that will work. That will get me through. While we neglect the most important solution of all. Like the man who said to his friend, I feel like I've lived my life like the professor on Gilligan's Island. This guy found time to fashion generators out of palm fronds and vaccines out of algae, but he never got down to fixing that huge hole in the boat so he could go home. And how many of us actually do? Jesus came to transform us whole again. He offers to repair the hole in us. Not only that, but through the good news, through the gospel, to fuel us for wise and godly living for the rest of our lives. This is what Paul seeks to explain in his letter to Titus. The gospel transforms and fuels every kind of person for wise living. Let me say that again. The gospel transforms and fuels us for every kind of person for wise living. And that's the contribution, sort of in a nutshell, that that Titus makes to the Bible. 
It's a book about how the gospel is enough to transform not just any kind of person, every kind of person, to live a godly life. Titus is living on this island called Crete. And he's living there because Paul, his mentor and traveling companion, has left him there. After a brief visit of, of sharing the gospel, observing how God repairs holes in people's lives, and has started to sort of build churches to help those people grow for the rest of their lives. Paul leaves Titus behind on this island called Crete. And Crete is an island located in the heart of the Mediterranean Sea, about 60 miles south of Greece. And you might know it kind of well because it's basically very near the site of the Flight 804, Egypt Air Flight 804, that tragically crashed this past Thursday. That's about the area where Crete is. And during... Paul and Titus' time in Crete, they discovered some interesting things about the island. They discovered that Crete was isolated, individualistic, immoral, and indulgent. So there was truly an I in Crete, if you want to put it that way, all right? All of these things. So in isolated, individualistic, it was immoral. In fact, to Crete was an expression in common Greek that day to lie or to cheat someone. You would say, that person creted me. That's how prominent immorality was on this little island. But also indulgent. Paul says as much, actually, if you, if you skip to chapter 1, I'm just going to read this, starting in verse 12. Paul says this in, in Titus. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then he goes on to say their testimony is true. <laughs> Our statement, harsh evaluation. So it would have been understandable for Paul to say to Titus, look, Titus, do what you can. I'm leaving you behind to pastor, to shepherd. Do what you can. After all, it's Crete. Yet Paul expects the gospel to transform every kind of person, no matter where they live, no matter where they're from. That's the big view of the gospel that Paul has and I want us to have. Think about the Cayman Isles, located in the heart of the British West Indies. Blue Caribbeans. I'm going to sing the whole national anthem, and I love it. <laughs> and we're, we're fixed between the United States and Central America, ever associated with wealth and tourism, also with escaping, with mixing a vacation with our lifestyle, the slight loosening of morals, cohabitation prior to marriage, Maybe not where I'm from, but here, that's all right. The, the weakening of commitment to friendships, to church, even to one's spouse, because, you know, everything in Cayman is temporary, right? A top 10 financial world center, which sort of breeds a love, even a lust for money. Visual delights of every kind, both pure delights and perverted visual delights, often on the same beach. And so should my, my elder pastor friends, when I came here six and a half years ago, had said to me, look, Ryan, you're coming here to Cayman. Do what you can. But after all, it is Grand Cayman. Should I have said to, to Brett when he came here almost three years ago, Brett, during the, the season of your life you're here, do what you can to pastor this people. But after all, remember, it's Cayman. Should, I've told our elders that, our community group leaders that, our volunteers, every person in the church, look, do what you can, but remember... It's Cayman. Paul refuses to adjust his expectations for the church, and neither should we. 
and refuses to adjust his expectation, not because he believes in them, but because he believes in the transformative power of the gospel. The good news that Jesus forgives and repairs rebels is what I'm staking my life on. It's what I'm staking this, my, my ministry on, my, my family, our presence in Cayman, on-island transformation of people who maybe come from different backgrounds, some who indulge, some who are individualistic, some who would never think of knowing God. But through the gospel, it opens their eyes. It helps them see they can have a relationship with him forever. I'm staking everything on this power. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be seeing the gospel's power to transform identity, mission, community, thinking, behavior, our relational roles towards one another, and the list goes on. And in today's sermon in a nutshell, this, will, this is how the gospel transforms. The gospel transforms who you are and your mission in life. That's going to be the message in a nutshell this morning if you want to jot that down. The gospel transforms who you are and your mission in life. So open your Bible, if you would, to Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's going to be on page 857. And what we're going to do is we're going to read a greeting this morning. And it's a long greeting. Now, when you and I greet someone on social media, text, WhatsApp, email, or less likely now, right, a card or a letter, we use greetings like, hey, yo, sup, homie, right? Or what's going on, Bobo? Those, those kinds of greetings. And at most, we might attach something like trust you are well to be formal or hope you are well to be kind, to be thoughtful, followed hopefully by a brief explanation of why we are right, although that doesn't always happen. Sometimes I literally just get a fist bump emoji out of nowhere from someone, followed by nothing else, and I don't know how to respond to that. So please tell me what I'm supposed to do. Fist bump emoji. Do you need something? Like, should we do, we need to talk? Should I call you? Are we doing okay? I don't know. That is why I'm, I'm social media illiterate. But this greeting that Paul sends to Titus it's long, and it's not longer and sort of more thoughtful. It's simply because it's older and people were just more proper back then. It's long and it's thoughtful because the gospel is new. And Paul recognizes that even in greeting someone, he has to be thoughtful about now who he is. That Jesus Christ lived, died, and was raised to rescue rebels like you and I was relatively new news to Paul and to Titus. So Paul opens this letter reminding Titus who he now is and why he now writes, or, or rather, as a reminder to them both, who we are now. And this is now our life mission because of the gospel, because this great news has entered our lives and totally transformed them. So as we read these verses, I want you to try to put yourself in Titus' sandals and just, just think as he would. This greeting is no, by no means standard, full of flowery language, just a butter Titus up. It's a fresh reminder that all this is really real, that this is really happening, that God has changed who I am and what I live for, just as it's changed this friend of mine who's writing me, this guy named Paul. So let's read together. Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, 
with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. First, we read here how the gospel transforms who we are, our identity. And it is the gospel that transforms. Paul speaks gospel truths in their most succinct form. Grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace and peace. And rather than explain to you guys, I'm sort of my own words, what grace and, and peace is, I want us to remember the words of Jesus and quote him directly. First, think about grace. Jesus said it very simply at the most trying moment of his life. Father, forgive them. And it was so important that he was saying, not only Father, forgive, but Father, forgive them. The them that are right in front of me. The them that are shouting me threats, taunts, that are gambling for my undergarments, and that are murdering me. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Luke chapter 23. These weren't just people who were undeserving of forgiveness. They were, they were ill-deserving of forgiveness. And that's what grace is. It's, it's free forgiveness for ill-deserving people. So that's not too different from us, right? Anytime we've said no to God's way, in our, in our heart of hearts, we say, no, God, I want to do things my way, not your way. We are still throwing a taunt to God. We are saying, God, even though you've created me, even though you've formed me, even though you've given me this chance to live and glorify you forever, I'm saying no, no, no. And yet Jesus, because what he did on the cross says, Father, I want to forgive them ill-deserving people, people who deserve something much worse, but I love them and I care for them. Jesus' words of free forgiveness were, were revolutionary, but they were very nearly empty because Jesus did die. After saying those words, Jesus did die. Everything seemed lost. He was buried, and every one of his closest friends despaired. They were asking questions like, what, did this all, what does this all mean then? Will I ever see him? Will I ever see Jesus again? But the biggest question they asked was, where does his death, where does Jesus' death leave me with God? I based everything on this. I was never able to follow God's law. I was never able to be perfect. I based everything on the teachings and person of Jesus, and now I'm alienated and alone. In John chapter 20, we read this. On the evening of the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, Jesus came and stood among them, And he said to them this, his first words after rising from the dead, peace be with you. Verse 19 of John 20. He said to them again in verse 21, peace be with you. And guys, this is why Jesus rose from the dead. He rose to make peace between us and the Father for any who would trust in him. So this is what the gospel is. It's grace and peace. Jesus offering free forgiveness and making peace between us and the Father. This is the transformative gospel, and this reality transforms the identity of all who receive it. So let's start with Titus, for instance. Titus, whom Paul calls, look at verse 4 here in Titus, my true child. Now, was Paul really Titus's father? Was Titus really Paul's child? No, of course not. Paul was a single dude, and not only single, but Jewish. And there was much made in the New Testament about, about Titus being very Gentile. He was the one not circumcised. He was non-Jewish. And yet, Paul says, your family, your family. 
Titus has become a child of God. And not just that, a child in common faith. And that might sound like a throwaway word to you, common faith. But that was a big deal. Common and uncommon. And the difference between them was a big deal in the Jewish religion. Because there were some things that were common, some things were uncommon. Some things you could touch, some things you couldn't touch. Prior to Jesus, God's people separated themselves from those not God's people. They separated themselves in worship and even at the lunch table. They were not to be around God's people. There's a clear line drawn between good and not as good. And Paul is saying to Titus, I'm a Jew and you are not, but through Jesus, we are both the same good. We share the same glorious good in common because of what Jesus did for us. And this matters tremendously for our identity. This week I wrote down all the ways I identify myself in life. And I'm just going to share with you some of them. I'm a father. But I don't just want to be a father. I want to be a good father. I'm a husband. I don't want to just be a husband. I want to be a good husband. I'm a community group leader. I want to be a good community group leader. I'm a preacher. Right now I'm preaching to you. I want to preach well. I want to be a good preacher. I'm a friend. I want to be a good friend. I'm the financial comptroller of my family. I I organize all the budgets and and take in all the receipts and think about things for the future and and talk about that with my wife. I want to be good at that. I'm a a paddleboarder. I want to be a good paddleboarder. I'm a baseball coach for my youngest son. I want to be a good coach. Twice this week, which is a miracle, I was sweeping and mopping on two different occasions. I want to be good at sweeping and mopping. I played a game with some guys on Friday night. I want to be good at the game I play. There is a hunger inside all of us to not only be someone, but be good at being someone. Be good at the identity that we all have. But that problem with that, guys, is it's always fluctuating, right, based on our performance. So I want to be a good father. But a lot of times I don't hear what my kids say. I miss an important piece of information that would have helped them and served them. I want to be a good, good community group leader. But a lot of times, I, maybe I talk too much, or I, I use the wrong kind of icebreaker or something like that, and I just don't serve the people well. You know what I'm saying? And so, so our identity is often based on our performance. And what Paul is saying to Titus is no longer. We are the same glorious good. We are both good with God, not because of our performance, but because of Jesus' performance. He has done everything we need to do. So we are always, we are always good with God. We are always delightful in God's eyes. We can always say, I'm not just a son, I'm a good son. I'm not just a daughter, I am a good daughter. Prior to Jesus, Paul, then Saul, wanted not only to be someone, but he too wanted to be good at being someone. He took pride, he says, in being, listen, this is from Philippians 3. He took pride in being a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's what I took pride in. This is what I found my identity in. That meant that he had only Jewish ancestors, pure Jewish ancestors, and spoke the Aramaic language. When everyone else, every other Jew in the area was just speaking Greek. He said, no, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I knew my stuff. And I demonstrated that in life. He said, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. In other words, I was the most religious. I was the most excited about following the law and the most disciplined about how I lived my life before other people. He also says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor in the church. In other words, I was the best kind of activist, the most passionate, the one who was always on the picket lines and even getting violent. Paul wanted that too, just like all of us do, not just to be someone, to be good at being someone. And the gospel transforms his identity. Look at verse 1. 
Paul becomes a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, because of grace, he just wants to say, I'm, I'm content just serving God and being an apostle. What does that mean, apostle? Apostle literally just means a sent one, someone who is sent. And there's two senses in the New Testament in which this idea of apostle is used. Firstly, apostle is used kind of like a big A, capital A, apostle. Those who witness the resurrection of Jesus perform miracles and also were entrusted to testify about Jesus in writing the New Testament. These were those who lived in the first century. In other words, not you and me. There's also the very basic meaning of apostolos, an apostle, and that is it's applicable to all Christians at all times. That's just being sent by God, being a sent one. And what I want to show you now is how all of this links together. Because I recognize this is not necessarily easy stuff. Paul speaks in run-on sentences, and so do I oftentimes. So what I want to show you is how this is all linked together. The gospel, our new identity, and a new mission. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're going to turn back to John 20. We looked at it earlier. The account of the resurrected Christ. It's on page 776 if you're using one of the Bibles we provided. John chapter 20. We're going to see the gospel, our new identity, and a new mission. Read this with me if you would. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came. And he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So first of all, Jesus gives them peace, which is so important, right? Because without peace, without that knowledge that no matter what, no matter what happens, I I am right with God. God will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. They can't possibly accept this new identity as sent ones from which we get apostles. They can't possibly go and share this too good to be true news with people from their own countries and other nations and face the rejection and the hardship and the looks and the rolling of the eyes and the persecution unless they are sure that I know God is with me no matter what. So the peace allows them to accept this new identity. Yes, I am a sent one, which is also, of course, their mission. And they're empowered for it, right? We see that here in the text. Jesus confirms this by bringing upon them the Holy Spirit who empowers them for this mission. And then he reminds them of the message they're supposed to bring. The message they are sent with. It's the message of free forgiveness, right? That's why he talks about forgiveness. So the gospel, this peace of God in our lives is supposed to transform you and I also. It transforms you too for all of this. Peace, identity, and mission. So in this opening greeting, Paul is reintroducing Titus to the risen Savior. He's sort of reenacting John 20. And every time we remind each other of the gospel, peace, identity, mission, it's all there. Every time we remind each other of what Jesus has done for us, we're reminding each other of who we are, the peace in our lives, who we are, and what we're called to do. So I want to go back for a minute, just for a minute, to Paul's description of Titus's identity. Remember what that was? Titus, true child, a common faith. Remember, he's not just a true child. 
He's a good child, a good son, a good daughter. Now, that's a good identity, isn't it? That, that identity probably makes you feel very warm. The identity we want because it, it communicates acceptance. It communicates comfort and love. But then we get to Paul's identity, also being a Christian, right? Servant and sent one. Now, that identity I could do without. Some of us think that way, right? And many have as Christians. I want to be God's child. I want to be accepted. I want to be loved, which you are, but I don't want to be a servant and a sent one. I don't want to be sent to other people to talk out loud about religion, to talk out loud about the good news specifically of Jesus. So I'll take the child part. But the servant and sent one, I'll leave that behind. But guys, it's all part of the same bundle. It is, a, it is a bundled plan. If you believe in the good news about Jesus, you get peace with God as his good child, and you're also sent as a servant to share the good news with others. And honestly, that feels kind of intimidating, doesn't it? It, it feels intimidating that not only am I a child, but I'm a sent one. But I want to point out some additional good news that we see in our text. The gospel, the same good news by which you're rescued, is all that you need as you're sent in the world. It's the only thing you need. The basic message that Jesus has come to forgive rebels freely and repair the hole in their life is the only message you need to transform your mission. Read with me here, verses 1 through 3. I just want to review this here. After, saying, after Paul saying who he is, he says he's these things for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now that is a long, run-on sentence, and I get it. So what I'm going to try to do is give us a word picture to sort of hang these ideas on, then we'll get back to the text. The word picture is this. You, a pond, fish, and a hook. You, a pond, fish, and a hook. That is basically what Paul is trying to communicate here. Now, I'm not a very good fisherman, and I likely will never be. Right? That's just the, the bottom line. I don't have the patience, nor apparently the stomach. I've noticed this living in Cayman. Every time I get on the open seas, it's like, Dramamine, where are you? Please, come to me. All right, I'm, I'm on the lower deck very quickly. I, I'm over the rail. I'm hoping this ends soon. Hope when we catch something, please be done. Just get the barracuda. Let's go. No one ever taught me to fish. I wish I knew folks like, like Justin Atridge over here and, and Jeremy Strickland. I wish I knew them as kids. They could have maybe taught me. But as a kid, I literally thought all you needed to catch a fish was the hook. I remember being at those carnivals, and you just you had the fishing line and the fake hook, and you just cast it in the water, and you got a prize. That's all you need to fish. And so I would actually go to a local creek and try that multiple times. And it wasn't until my friend... Cameron at our local park in Southern California brought out his tackle box and had like 50 types of lures. And I was like, oh, would those have been helpful? Like, yeah, that would have been, that would have been good. Jesus told some disciples who were fishermen, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Their mission through Jesus had become to fish for men. And ever since, Christians have been coming up with new ways to try to catch men, to try to catch people, to bring them in the kingdom. For 1,500 years, it was, it was a very simple way. There was two simple methods, uh, threat of warfare and fear. So other than the gospel, people just said, I will conquer you unless you believe in Jesus. And some people said, okay, I'm in. 
And other, other times people say, oh, you're probably going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. And some people said, okay, I'm in. And, and since that time, we've grown a little more evolved in our methods. We've used musical concerts, humor, Christian t-shirts, Christian movies, special church dramas, and sort of rallies. Not to mention the pressure on all of us to say something clever, to have all the right answers, or just seem super relevant in the way we share the good news about Jesus. And so we've cycled through about 50 different kinds of lure, hoping to catch someone, not really trusting that the gospel can really catch them. The good news about Jesus will really catch their hearts. And here's the word picture Paul gives Titus. You can see it on our screen above, and it's echoed elsewhere in the New Testament. It's this, that, that every day you walk next to a pond, and in that pond, there are some fish ready, even promised to be caught. All you have to do is cast the line and use the hook. You don't have to use something fancy. What you say doesn't have to be perfect. You just have to cast the line, and the hook will do the rest. So in this word picture, the, the, the fish are the people of God, whom he's elected to eternal life. There are fish that God has promised, that God the Father has promised eternal life. Paul says this here in verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. This is the term used by Paul consistently to refer to those that God has chosen or elected for salvation. He said, I've chosen you. I have adopted you. I want you. When did he choose them? Look in verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, with God, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So God promised eternal life to some before humanity, before you and I, for our ancestors were even around. So if he made this promise, just like you and I make a promise to someone, whom, to whom did he make this promise? Because we weren't around. Ephesians 1.4 says this, that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. The promise was from the Father to the Son. God the Father was promising God the Son a bride. He was promising God the Son, you who trust Christ before the creation of the world, before the ages, before the ages began. So there are people, that means, that you walk by every day. There are people who are near. There may be people you talk to who are spoken for, who are promised people to Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it? All you have to do is be faithful to use the hook, which is the gospel, the good news. Look at verse 1. Paul says he's doing this all for the sake of the faith that God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. All they have to do is know the truth. All we have to do, our job then, is just to go with them and tell them the truth. And that is enough. That is sufficient. Look at verse 3. At the proper time, eternal life was manifested in his word through the preaching. In other words, our sharing the truth that Jesus freely forgives and repairs rebels is the means by which God grants them eternal life. It is the way, it is the hook. All you have to do is cast it. All you have to do is open your mouth. And this may present for us very, lots of philosophical questions, like how much is our choice, right? How much are we responsible for? But it goes a long way to alleviate our life mission question, which is to what lengths do I need to go? What steps do I have to take to convince my friend, my neighbor, my coworker, whom I love, to trust Jesus? And the answer is only the next step. There's only the next step. That's it. Because some have been promised to Jesus Some have been chosen. So you've listened, you've learned, you've loved the person. Now tell them how Jesus has repaired your life. You've spent years building the relationship, and now maybe you're leaving island finally. All you have to do is muster up one minute of what Jesus' grace and peace has wrought 
in you. Just one minute. At that chance encounter when a person offers up a glimpse of need in their life, a need for something deeper, and you just need to open your mouth. It doesn't have to be perfect because it might very well be they are promised of God to eternal life and all they need is a hook to hold on to. The gospel. Through the gospel of peace, guys, God can transform you into his good child and his sent one because you too are meant to be a fisher of men. Let's pray. God, we thank you for inspiring Paul here to open his letter to Titus, not with just a a quick greeting, a what's up, Titus, what's going on, but to greet Titus with the gospel, to remind Titus of the gospel, to remind Titus because of the peace that God has worked in our lives to make us right with him. We are both children of the same family. We have a new identity. We are children and we're also sent children. We are sent to simply go fishing. We are sent to cast a line and just share with others briefly what Jesus has done for us. And you do the rest. You have elected people, we're told here in your word. You have made a promise before the ages began for certain people in the pond of our lives to be caught and to know you forever. And that should free us to speak and free us to trust that all we need is the hook. All we need is the good news. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing more glitzy or glamorous or clever or witty, but just the good news. Help us trust that your good news is truly the power of God for salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.